Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, the Online Safety Commissioner will join me to explain how her office will work to make the online world a less harmful place. Plus, could AI replace your favourite music artist? As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram at jesskellynt. But we're going to start this week with Neve Hodnett, who is one of five commissioners working for the newly established Commission Naman. This body has been tasked with regulating the world of broadcasting and online services. Neve is the Online Safety Commissioner, which is a role that we've talked about quite a bit on this programme over the last number of years. And I sat down with her earlier this week and started by asking her about the overall goal of her office. Thanks, Jess. So I'm the Online Safety Commissioner here at Commission the Man. And my role is to ensure online safety is implemented from the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act. So my role would be to establish and enforce an online safety regime or regulatory regime here in Ireland. In Commission Naman, I am one of five commissioners. So we're led by an executive chair, Jeremy Godfrey. And there's also a broadcasting commissioner, a media development commissioner, myself, the online safety commissioner. And next week we'll be joined by the digital services commissioner. So in relation to my role, so this is um, um, establishing and implementing the framework for online safety here in Ireland. I'm going to be designating the services for regulation and adopting a binding online safety code. And the code is something that we're going to jump into in just a quick minute. But I wanted to talk through, uh, I suppose, just how broad a role you have. Because I've been at launches before where, you know, whether it's the Taoiseach of the day, the Taunish of the day, ministers of the day, saying that one of the biggest issues we have when it comes to regulating anything that happens online is that it is called the World Wide Web. So you don't always know who the person is who's doing something, who the brand is, who the company is, where they are. Uh, I suppose give me a bit of insight into the team that you're surrounding yourself by and how you'll go about chasing down and putting right some of the wrongs that are happening. So our plan is to reduce harmful content online and how we're going to do that is by putting the basic building blocks for regulation in place this year. So that's the designating of the services for regulation, the video sharing platform service, and also adopting the binding online safety code, which will set binding measures that video sharing platform services have to comply with once that's in place. That's going to take us this year to put in place. We've already stood up two projects in relation to that and we've already started those. So we currently have a consultation, a public consultation on our website on the category designation of video sharing platform services. And we also have a wide call for inputs published as well on our website, where we're asking the public what should be in our first online safety code so that we can hear from the platforms themselves, but also civil societies, NGOs, government departments and indeed the public on what measures should be contained in our online safety code. So they're they're the two main projects we've established and we're already up and running with um, in our first year of operation because we were established on the 15th of March and we published our work plan on the 20th of June and we've kicked off those two key projects to put the basic building blocks of regulation in place for online safety this year. And the type of team I'm surrounding myself in relation to that is um, we, when we were established on the 15th of March, Commission Aman, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, which is our predecessor, became Commission Aman on that date. So the former staff of the BAI are now the staff of Commission Aman, and they are assisting me with those two key projects. But we also have a big recruitment drive going on at the moment. And if any of your listeners are listening, I will be interested in a very exciting career to help shape a new regulator. Um, um, we ha- are recruiting at, at, at all levels and across all functions of the organisation uh, to ramp up in, on in our staff numbers so that we will have the necessary resources in place to be able to deliver an important mandate. Mm. I, I was reading up online uh 
just bits and pieces about, again, the role, the office and the vision here. And I noticed that there were four categories of harmful content online. Uh, so number one is material that's criminal to share. Two is material that's readily identifiable as serious cyberbullying. Three is material that is readily available, identifiable as promoting eating disorders. And four is material that is readily identifiable as promoting or providing instructions for suicide and self-harm. Um, obviously, all of those make pure sense. But I want to zone in a little bit on the cyberbullying one for a quick minute. Um, because... It's something that we've spoken about here on News Talk quite a lot over the years. I've had parents emailing me, um, particularly with concerns around their, you know, kids, young teens and older teenagers. And then also myself as an adult who has been targeted online. And one of the things that I spoke about briefly last week on air is uh, some of the messages I've been receiving over the last little while have been deeply upsetting, deeply personal, very attacking And when I report them using the reporting protocols on whatever platform it is, they're found not to be in breach. So when it comes to something like cyberbullying, getting that definition and the spectrum and the understanding of the impact on the person, that's going to be a massive challenge. That's absolutely one of our areas of focus, Jess. So as you say, as well as the offence-based harms, um, cyberbullying is another type of harmful content to find under the act and in our call for inputs that we have out there on on our website we're asking um what harmful content should we be focusing on in our first online safety code and that's one of the harmful contents that we call out so cyberbullying but also in relation to the offense-based um content we also call out hate speech harassment um as also types of harmful content that our online safety code will address so these are absolutely areas of harmful content that our first online safety code will be seeking to address and we're going to put measures in place in our online safety code to address that. So the measures that we are going to be putting in place in our first online safety code, and we'll be, we are consulting in the call for inputs as to what they should be and how to best apply those in the circumstances are things like safety by design and a child-centered approach. We'll also be looking at um, having effective complaint handling and content moderation systems in place with the platforms and ensuring that they report to us on how they're dealing with content moderation and complaint handling. And I suppose the the content moderation will have to be transparent and user friendly. So there there will have to be a transparent, user friendly approach for people to be able to flag harmful content and to request its removal and an effective complaint handling measure in place for complaints to be dealt with in a timely way. And we're consulting in our call for inputs as to what those timelines should be and should we'd be setting timelines in relation for dealing with those complaints. Uh, one of the things that I'm very aware of is that the platforms, a lot of the platforms now use artificial intelligence in terms of judgment calls when it comes to, you know, me reporting somebody saying that I'm stupid or I'm whatever online. And because it's not one of the trigger words they've identified, it's found not to be in breach. Will your office, or is it, is it possible that your office will look for more human moderation alongside the artificial intelligence and to rebalance that seesaw slightly? What we'll be doing in our first online safety code um, and in our call for inputs is requiring the platforms to reduce harmful content online and putting effective measures in place to be able to reduce that harmful content. What we'll be doing then next year when we have the basic regulatory building blocks in place this year through the online safety code and the designation is we'll be monitoring for compliance with that code and taking enforcement action or or complaints either on the basis of an own initiative investigation enforcement action or on the basis of complaint enforcement action to see if they're complying with the binding online safety code. I, uh, it'd be too early at this point to say what's going to be in the online safety code. Would we be prescribing a particular method, AI versus human content? I think there's a lot of benefits to both. Mm-hmm. When you have got AI content moderation, then it means that humans don't have to moderate or see um, some of the quite upsetting or triggering harmful content or illegal content online. Um, and also AI can get through an awful lot of content moderation quicker than a human reviewer can. So I, 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 I think it's too early to say at this stage, and I'm not sure we would be prescribing a particular 
particular um, approach or methodology because we'll be overtaken by technology if we were to mandate too strictly um, the balance between human and AI in terms of content moderation. But certainly there would always have to be in the appeals or in the complaints handling human oversight and human intervention to be able to deal with with those issues. Um, And I think another thing to say is that we'll expect those complaint handling and the content moderation to be effective and timely and that um, if not once we are doing our enforcement we will take issue or action in relation to that. Towards the back end of next year we're also looking at putting in place our individual complaints framework so there once a user has raised an issue with a platform and once the new code binding obligations are in place for that um, complaint or issue be dealt with in a, in a diligent and timely and effective way and once the appeals process has been gone through, then then the user could bring the complaint to us at Commission Naman and we're going to then set up an individual complaints mechanism to be able to deal with that. Taking it back to uh, the children and young people online, um, Alex Cooney of CyberSafe Kids is off and on with me talking through the work that they're doing to try and inform parents and so on. And I'm just curious if you have an, an idea or a vision for how your office will support the parents who may not be tech literate, don't know if something is worthy of the guards, need help and support from a digital literacy point of view, and then also from an enforcement point of view, if something is found to be in breach. Yes, one of our roles is in the area of media literacy or digital literacy. So as well as pure regulation, if you like, so we will be rather than regulating users, we'll be regulating the platform. So the binding on unsafety codes will be uh, applied to the platforms, not to users. So I think that's important to note when we talk about enforcement, it's not enforcement against users, it's enforcement against the platforms to ensure they have effective measures in place. Um, one of the measures that we'll be looking to put in place in online safety code are parental controls. So to ensure that effective parental controls are offered by the platforms that are easy to use, transparent, and whether they should be on by default in relation to minor accounts. Um, So some of these types of parental controls that could be considered and which we're consulting on our call for inputs are things like time limits, they're things like um, having location settings turned off by default for minors, having advertising turned off by default or profiling of advertising turned off by default for minors. So these are some of the types of measures that we're consulting on. Um, but separately to all of regulation, there is certainly a role for education, digital literacy, media literacy, because it's not all about regulating the platforms. I think we all have a role to play in relation to this. We as parents also empowering children themselves to be able to navigate the online world safer and more civilly. So I engaged with a youth panel um, earlier on this week, I spoke with Spun Out's youth panel and we were discussing how, in addition to regulation, the importance of educating parents and children as to how to be civil online and the importance of that education role so that we all think before we post about the impact it can have on another person, not just children, adults too. Yeah, and that point around adults too is so important because... You know, if you open any social platform any day of the week and you scroll through, you don't have to be on it for too long before you see something that's, you know, either potentially harmful, that could be deemed inappropriate. And it always sparks up this debate of, you know, freedom of speech and self-expression versus minding people's feelings and well-being and so on. It is going to be, I've said it three times now, but it is going to be a difficult task. Like You're not going to just swoop in with a magic wand going, there, I fixed the internet, now you can all enjoy it. I don't think we're going to make the internet safe at the end of our binding online safety code, but we'll certainly make it safer from where it is today. And we, it's important to suppose that we also focus on the positive. So we want it to be a vibrant space where we can all engage digitally in, in, a, in a safe way. But we do have to strike that balance between protecting us from harm and freedom of expression, so the rights of children to participate in the digital society, but also privately and safely. Um, we also have to think about the economic rights of the regulated entities too. So we have to be proportionate. So I suppose it is that balancing act if we want to enjoy our digital lives, but we want to feel safer than we do today. Um, the one in, in, area that really interests me, I don't know if you saw the story earlier in the week, uh, Tommy Bow of Ireland AM, former rugby player, uh, highlighted a number of scam ads that have basically photoshopped him 
into the image and said that, you know, he had been arrested for something or he'd gone too far this time. And we've seen these types of ads before where they use the name and the face of a celebrity to get you to click through, bring you to a scam website and then whatever happens, happens. Is is that type of content something that'll cross your desk? Because I suppose there is a safety element of you're going onto a site that is purporting to be one thing and then it's something else entirely. In addition to the um, online safety codes, we at Commission Man will also have a role in relation to the Digital Services Act. And the Digital Services Act will apply from the 25th of August for very large online platforms. And it will apply um, from February 2024 in relation to, to most intermediate online services. Um, so the the reason I call it the Digital Services Act is that deals with illegal content online and also disinformation. So a lot of you are suggesting there might fall within the ambit of disinformation, which mm. can be dealt with under the Digital Services Act, or indeed if it produces scam or it amounts to illegal content, that can also be dealt with there. So I think both pieces of legislation, both our own Online Safety and Media Regulation Act and the European Digital Services Act, will seek to work hand in glove to reduce illegal and harmful content online. And what we'd expect to see um, because of the transparency requirements in relation to advertising and the traceability requirements in relation to advertising, we would expect to see an improvement um, in this area from the platforms that they will have to be aware of who's putting these ads on their platforms and they'll have to be aware of who's posting in relation to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke to Jackie Fox on the programme a number of months ago and Jackie is the woman who led the charge for what's called Coco's Law um, which is, relates to sort of intimate image abuse and that is a, a true piece of progress that has happened in terms of tackling harmful, very upsetting content that can occur online. Um, do you anticipate... I suppose this is a stupid question, so bear with me. But will what your office introduce, will that become legislation or is it codes of conduct? And is there scope for the codes of conduct to then therefore become legislation a la Coco's Law? So Coco's Law and the non-consensual intimate image sharing is one of the offence-based harms in our act. So it's one of, of uh, because it's one of the offence, 42 offence-based harms, it's de facto harmful content under our own act. And so when we adopt our binding online safety code, it'll be to reduce harmful content online and to take steps to remove it. Uh, so that will be covered by our binding online safety code. Our code, when we adopt it, although it is not legislation in, in the true sense of the word, it does have to be laid before um, the House of the Oireachtas. We give it to our minister and she lays before the House of the Oireachtas. Um, and a breach of the online safety code, because it's a binding online safety code, attracts significant civil and indeed criminal sanctions in relation to certain contraventions. And so it is very much binding in that sense and, and can be enforced accordingly. Um, we often talk about GDPR. I love a bit of data protection. Uh, we've heard quite a bit about the da- uh, from the Data Protection Commission over the years. Um, will the fines are, are the fines as sort of black and white and set in stone as a fine for a breach of GDPR for the platforms if they don't adhere to your codes? The fines can be significant under our Act. So under the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act, a breach of the binding online safety code can attract fines of up to 10% of relevant turnover or 20 million, whichever is the greater. So that is indeed significant. And under the Digital Services Act, a breach of the Digital Services Act can attract fines of up to 6% of worldwide turnover. So it's again, very significant indeed. So I think we are talking about similar um, types of fines as would be or could be imposed under the GDP or by the Data Protection Commission. Um, but I think what we all tend to focus in on the stick, but there's an awful lot, I think, as you mentioned earlier, outside of the fining of the platforms um, or indeed the criminal uh, sanctions in relation to some particular contraventions of the Act, that outside of that, there is this opportunity now for us all to work together whether in light of the Digital Services Act or of the Online Safety and Media Regulation Act, and to work with the good work that some of the platforms are already doing in this area and to move the dial further in the right direction to introduce safety by design as a concept, to reduce the amplification of harmful content online, uh, to improve education and media literacy and digital literacy, um, and to equip parents and children to navigate safer online. 
Yeah, and I suppose that you make such a good point and sometimes I'm too cynical. Like the goal here is that your office doesn't have to do anything because everyone online just behaves and everything is great and that is the vision. Um, And I know from meeting individuals who work at some of these big tech platforms that we often talk about, there is the will and the want there. But I do think sometimes it can be like catching smoke because you can't give everyone an internet supervisor to watch what you do and pre-approve what you do. That's just not how it works. Um, have you engaged with the platforms? Because I, I think I read in a, in a fact bungle, bundle about your office is that like 11 of the 17 big platforms are HQ'd here in Ireland or something like that. There's a stat like that. Um, so have you been engaging with them and is there that appetite for cooperation and regulation? Because Mark Zuckerberg of Meta has said multiple times that you know his firm would welcome more regulation uh, when it comes to online safety. Yes, we've been engaging with all the platforms and you're right, 11 of the very large online platforms or very large online search engines are, are established here in Ireland. And we have been meeting with the platforms and learning about where they are in their, in their online safety journey to date. Um, and I suppose where the gaps are too, or where the improvements could be going forward. They are all very engaged in relation to this. Um, and whether it'll be done in, um, in cooperation, it'll certainly be done in consultation. And that's why we're consulting on what should be in our first online safety code and consulting on the designating of video sharing platform services currently. Um, And we'll be consulting every step of the way with the platforms, but not just with the platforms, also with civil societies and with NGOs who we've been meeting with also. So all the stakeholders in this space. Mm. Uh, Later on in the show, we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence in the context of art. So, you know, music and movies and all the rest. Yeah, I know I can't wait for that conversation. But uh, we know that the the rate of change in the world of technology is breathtaking. There's something new coming out every other day of the week. Will your office have the pace and the agility to keep up with changes that come rather than, you know, in three years time, introduce something that's impacting me as a human being here today. I think we're very much bearing that in mind when we are thinking about how we're going to draft our first online safety code. If we are too prescriptive, it will be overtaken by innovation probably faster than our Incas try in our first online safety code. So for that reason, it'll be important to embed principles um, as opposed to maybe too prescriptive an approach in relation to the online safety code, a principle-based code, um, and also f- I, the Digital Services Act takes a risk-based approach. So the platforms, for example, have to conduct risk assessments and take mitigating measures uh, to show how they are addressing those risks. Um, the danger of being too prescriptive in relation to a code or legislation or otherwise is that there is innovation and there is development of technology happening faster than we can keep pace either as regulators or legislators. Uh, so it is very important to have that principle-based approach. But I think a principle such as safety by design and a child-centered approach, privacy by design, security by design, these principles can be used um, regardless of the development of technology or or the pace of change. Mm. Uh, My final question is, I'm sure the existence of uh, your role is going to give a whole host of people that sense of comfort, that it is being taken seriously, that there's work that can be done and that action will be taken. I know that I certainly feel better knowing that it exists. Um, how long do you expect it to be before we start seeing action? And I, I know you kind of like Rome wasn't built in a day and you do have to do all of the work that's going on now. But when do you think, you know, Mary on the street down the road will start feeling the impact of knowing that there is somebody there doing the work that you're doing? Well, we're here now and we're doing the work um, that we are doing and we are already consulting on what should be in our first online safety code. So we've published that call for inputs and we'd be delighted to hear from your listeners on on what they think we should be putting in the first online safety code. That's out there on our website at the moment. We're also consulting on the designation. We expect to have the designation and the online safety code in place by the end of the year. And so we'll be able to take enforcement action next year and be able to handle complaints towards the end of next year. Um, In relation to the Digital Services Act, that applies for the very large online platforms and search engines from the 25th of August of this year. So they're already taking steps to come into compliance in relation to that. So I I do think that um, we're already 
already starting to see measures be adopted by platforms to bring themselves into compliance with the Digital Services Act so that they're in a good place from the 25th of August of this year. Um, and we'll continue to see further improvements once the online safety codes are in place at the end of this year, because the platforms won't wait till, you know, they will start taking measures in, in advance, as they have been doing, and building on their existing um, trust and safety measures. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, I can't wait to see the full impact, uh, you know, in two, three, four years down the line, uh, what this will mean, not only for young people in the country who are going up with the internet, but as I said, adults as well, because I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate the impact that online content, harmful on, online content can have on adults. Um, like I've seen it with friends and with colleagues and with people I know quite well. Uh, so I do hope that everybody takes it seriously and also just stop being a moron online. Uh, that would be the goal. Uh, but Neve, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Jess, thank you so much for having me. That was Neve Hodnett, the Online Safety Commissioner, speaking with me earlier this week. Uh, I would love to know what you think. What should be in the Online Safety Code? And are you confident that it will make the internet a less harmful place? Techtalk at Newstalk.com is the email address. Now, when we come back here on News Talk, could AI realistically replace Oasis? Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Yeah, that is my beloved Oasis with Supersonic, which is also the name of a brilliant documentary about the band. If you haven't seen it yet, you should. It's on Netflix and definitely worthy of your time. Uh, but the reason I'm playing it is because there's been an awful lot of talk about AI and the arts in recent days, particularly in the context of the actor strike. And the question has been asked, could artificial intelligence replace your favourite actor, your favourite musician, your favourite comedian, your favourite author? And for Oasis fans, is AI Oasis as close as we'll ever get to having new music from the band? Colm Buick of Off The Ball is with me now to discuss and debate. Colm, you're most welcome. Jess Ventura, Black Detective. Hello. <sighs> You've already ruined it. <laughs> anyway, uh, I mentioned you on the show last week in the context of the Wham! documentary. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, as I just mentioned there, the actor strike in, uh, particularly in the US, we've seen a lot of actors coming out in the last little while and AI is a huge factor in their reasons for striking because they're saying that their image, their voices, their beings could be utilised, they'll be underpaid, undervalued and so on. But in the context of music, we mentioned Wham! last week, we mentioned the Oasis doc. Do you envisage a world where artificial intelligence will replace the likes of Noel Gallagher or Liam Gallagher? Replace now is a very strong word in action. But it could be an occasional replacement substitute. Like I've seen it happen with the Beatles as well. Mm. Songs that they never, that Paul or John wouldn't have written, but sound remarkably like they would have. So, I mean, it's such an interesting area because like where does copyright come into it and ownership of the songs and all that? So it's a, it must terrify the music industry, mm-hmm. I'd say. But if you're in control of what's happening and you reap the benefits, then... I don't think there'll be much hesitation using it. I'd say like maybe in a couple of decades time it'll be ubiquitous. I think there'll be a lot of hesitation for this generation to use it. Yeah, I was talking to Luke O'Neill earlier in the week about uh, what happens to ourselves when we die. As in, what happens to, like, so we obviously work in broadcasting. Uh If we were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, which doesn't happen, could News Talking Off The Ball use our voices from the archives that they have of us over the years to build a Jess Kelly AI to provide some witty sarcasm and top tech advice. I thought they'd use that as a escape for a clean break. They wouldn't have to do it. But if they decided to mm. go for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they would. But if I they mean, actually they, value they, me like. Yeah, yeah like, that's very quirky. Thanks, yeah. Mike. They, um, so if they do value you right say say they do imagine right? for, if they did just for argument's sake yeah, for, thanks. for this cool. for the for the purpose of the segment they value you right mm. but when in my mind then they'd still need consent from the kellys or next of kin to use your voice to continue you know so you're asking me like could i envision it happening yeah. and i'm saying yes but immediately i'm going to the practicalities of the legalities around yeah using a voice and i wonder is that a gray area but maybe it's not i'd like to hear legal advice on that <laughs> Let's put them on the line. Oh wait, there's nobody there. Uh, no, but this is the whole point of of 
the debate that's going on, particularly in the context of the actor strike. But uh, Ray Foley on Today FM earlier in the week played a snippet of somebody who uses AI to manipulate the voice of musicians and get them to sing different songs. So, uh-huh. for example, uh, there's one of Johnny Cash singing Barbie Girl. Yeah. It's very sophisticated. Yeah. But as a music fan, uh. would you want another Oasis album generated by AI, signed off by Nolan and Liam? Because there was one earlier this year that yeah. wasn't. But if they signed off on it but had nothing creatively, because mm. we were talking last week about the Oasis doc mm. and you get to see their brilliance and how a lot of their experience of growing up in Manchester, obviously their ties to Ireland, the difficulties that they had, like their dad was very abusive and all the rest. You can absolutely hear that in their songwriting and in their storytelling. Mm. So could AI realistically produce another Oasis album? Yeah, well, there's probably there's 30 years of evidence to go by, so you'd have loads to go on. And like the naysayers towards Oasis would say like they're the most basic of rock bands because it's four chords and it's singing about partying and then eventually singing about being free. So you could say, well, it's easily it's easily done to replicate the whole thing. Uh-huh. But for me, like if you're asking, I suppose like our generation would probably be very reluctant at the idea of it because like we grew up with artists like, well, they'd actually hate to be called artists, but like musicians like Noel and Liam who came from little, like are certainly not really much of a music background. I think their dad DJed and that was it. Mm. And then they just did it themselves or certainly Noel did. He picked up a guitar. He didn't know where a guitar came from and wrote all these songs and was a roadie in a band in Spiral Carpets. So I think our generation, a lot of, most people in it, love that story of someone who grafted and made their way to the very top. And it feels to me like AI would just bypass all of that and take a shortcut. But if you asked maybe younger people or just people who are all about AI, it doesn't matter what age you are, they could say, yeah, I mean, like if it creates great music that I love to listen to, Mm. who cares where it came from? And then if you have someone as charismatic as Noel on radio promoting the idea that there's an AI generated album yeah. then suddenly maybe I would be on board because if Noel's setting the virtues of it then I'd be like okay it's his music and so he wants to replicate it I'd say if you said to him or Liam I know Noel gets most of the money but it would be like you know this, you'll get X amount if we do this mm-hmm. he'd be like yeah go ahead because it's not going to change what he created but um, I would be against it Yeah but as a fan and like the other example that I was thinking of is David Byrne from Talking Heads. I love yeah. Talking Heads. Yeah. Like absolutely adore every single day listen to them. I don't, like some of the, the stuff that he's written over the years is so batshit crazy that it could potentially be done by AI, mm. right? But it's when you see them perform live. Stop Making Sense, the live performance uh, by Talking Heads is one of my favourite things I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. You would not get that no. with AI-generated content. You know, that's really interesting because, so, the Talking Heads is a great example. Oasis were at their best live mm-hmm. in the 90s. Like, every time I listen back to them, like, I'd be sending you links of, like, mm-hmm. Main Road 1996, those two nights in March 96, a few months before Nebworth. Like, I could listen to those gigs all day long. Yeah. The GMX uh, arena in December 97. Incredible, like, the height of their hedonism like Liam has a beard which is an unusual look for him at the time and like just incredible nothing can replicate that was his peak voice Liam like he was incredible at that time he went downhill afterwards so you can't replicate that having said that other musicians other genres I've seen like Daft Punk and Chemical Brothers live and that feels like an AI experience yeah. because it's, it's two lads up there in the distance behind these DJ booths and you're like for all we know they could be pressing play they and totally could, are be pressing play and they could just yep. be chatting away amongst themselves like yeah. do you know so I suppose we kind of have a little bit of an idea of what it could look like. I'm not saying that's AI generated. Of course, they're creating all that magic. But like that's that's what it could be. How that would transition to a rock band, a traditional rock band where you have your uh, lead singer and guitarist and bassist and drummer. Mm-hmm. It would feel very cold and very like it's not an immersive experience. And it's just like, well, it may sound good, but it's homogenized mm. to death. The thing that I've been thinking about since we planned and having this conversation is that it's not just about the music and the content. There's also, like if you ask anybody about the 90s, I guarantee you within five people, someone will say the battle of Britpop. Yeah. So Oasis versus Blur. Yeah. They'll talk about the fashion. They'll talk about the the vibe of it all. And yeah. that came from the music. And so I do wonder if we go down the road of generative AI as a form of entertainment and celebrating all that it produces in terms of like a three minute song, you are going to then lose cultural influences 
beyond just what's in your headphones. Yeah, definitely. And Noel even lamented that at the end of the Supersonic documentary that you referenced earlier, that his voiceover in that Nebworth gig, he was like, that was the last of that grouping of people that you'll ever see. And the reason is there wasn't one mobile phone in sight. So no yeah. one was filming it. Yeah. So then a few years later, well, you're talking 10 years later by the time camera phones come in. So in the mid to late noughties, when you're watching the rise of Arctic Monkeys or Kasabian to name other similar type rock bands, mm. you see the odd phone. But when you get into the 2010s, it's just off the charts and there's no going back now ever. So like the transition to bring it on further to AI wouldn't probably be as shocking for us because we've kind of already been there. We've kind of lost the romanticism of people like truly people gathering as strangers in a field, thousands and thousands of people who have no other distractions other than what's in front of them. And you could argue that's already gone because people whip their phones out and like it's all going up online and it's like getting the best video which they're never going to watch back. They're never going to watch back. Ever, like it's a total waste of time. The sound is always distorted. It sounds absolutely shocking. And I guarantee they don't listen to it back. Your camera roll is Banjax. Yeah. And you might put it up on a story on Instagram. Do you you take your phone out at a gig? No, I honestly don't. No, no. Do you know what? Go on. I say it's over, like do you know? Do you know? Mm. In the cold light of a weekend. Yeah. But like, no, someone could remind me that was with me, like that. Oh, you been the phone out, all right? Like yeah. the odd picture, and I probably was putting it up on uh, on my story. But it's almost putting it up to see who else is at the gig, because then if someone sees, like, oh, I'm here too, and I was like, great, we'll all meet up then afterwards. Yeah. You're almost doing that, really. That that for me is the experience. But never am I like filming these things, and then like Monday morning, I oh, listen back to that now. I'll just wait for the actual live version to come out. Like there was a lot of controversy this week about Taylor Swift tickets being yeah. extortionately expensive. It's, it's Oh my God. I am so outraged by it. My little cousin Rachel really wants to go. They did the pre-registration thing, all the rest. And the only tickets that were left were 700 quid. Like imagine, for one ticket, imagine spending 700 euro to go see an artist who's got millions of dollars worth of property around the world, is one of the biggest selling artists, has taken on and won against streaming companies. Yeah. It is gouging at its worst. So she's a bit of a modern legend, right? So am I right in saying she re-recorded all her music? Yeah. Yeah. And presumably she has control over the prices, right? She can definitely overrule it. She definitely has a say. Radiohead do something similar where they they cheapen the tickets because they were getting outrageous. So you, like you say, she's a multimillionaire, but maybe she feels, look, I put all this endeavour into it and it's, I think Come it's what it's worth the music like. No, no, no. But the thing is, I think it's the Aviva she's playing at. Yeah. If she sat every single ticket at 86 euro or whatever the basic price was yeah. and got rid of the VIP packages and just had all the tickets being general admission, she would still make an F ton of money. This idea of sectioning off parts of a stadium to have different tiers of VIP experience. Yeah. And the VIP experience, by the way, just because I was in an absolute rant about this the other day, you get a seated ticket, you get a lanyard, you get four postcards of Taylor Swift, you get a, a, a sort of commemorative ticket thing and you get one, like you get basically tat. Yeah. And you're being charged 700 quid per ticket. Now there's other artists like Ed Sheeran who've taken on the big um, ticket out type things and he's implemented very strict rules around you know bringing ID to gigs to make sure that if you bought the ticket you are who you say you are and I appreciate and respect that. What happened this week was not in the interest of the fan. It was gouging. Uh, it looked like it. Like I'm just looking at your tweets here. Yeah. And so the name of the different packages. So Karma is my boyfriend package. That's a song. Oh, that's going to ask you. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I also had to Google that as well. Seven hundred and forty-three euro and sixty-two cent each. Yeah. Well, what does that entitle you to? They just literally. Do like, what you just said. The, oh the, the postcards, a lanyard. You still get the same seat. And the other thing is, Harry Styles did this for Slane as well. There were VIP packages, and people were saying that once you got your fancy ticket, you went in, and it was basically general admission. Yeah. And I think, like back in the day, when I went to see Westlife at the Point Depot having a whale of a time. It was such a good experience. I brought my niece to see Ed Sheeran in Croke Park. She had a whale of a time. And you get to see how important those events are for kids. Mm. Like, I'm, what was your first gig? Um, someone asked me this last week and I still can't remember. I should just give you an answer. It's probably something embarrassing. There. No, but Oasis is playing in Parky Ring. 
did you see them? That, that my sisters went, but I was I wasn't allowed to go. Oh, my sisters are a good bit older, like so. That like that's my first Oasis experience because when I was in the, all I remember in the mid nineties in the house just Wonderwall on the radio every other song. Yeah, and uh, so it went through them, and I to to, to this day. I can name you 600 gigs I've been to but I can't remember my first. Mm. I cannot remember my first. I think mine was Westlife. I was a big Westlife fan back in the day. Yeah, that would so mine would have been around that time too. Was it Westlife? I thought, no, I was never into them. Because I, I thought boys on it some great tunes. All Saints I loved. See, they were all my sister's music. Yeah, but I, I got it through my sisters so they had yeah. ghetto blasters. Yeah, my sister did oh, I remember. I remember them opening Christmas the morning. It was like the biggest thing ever. And I got all my music taste through them, really, like, because it, like, literally, yeah, so they would I. just blare it as loud as you could, like, and my dad would be going mental downstairs and turn it down. That's my childhood memory. Yeah. So all my music comes from them. Uh, I can't remember my first gig. That's really bad. I know. And as I say, I could give you countless examples, but yours is Westlife in Dublin. Yeah. I'm from Dublin, so. I know. You might have gone to Sligo. They might have had a homecoming. I don't think I left Dublin until I started working have for News Talk. Have you ever left Dublin? I have. I think my first time genuinely was going to the ploughing with News Talk when I was like 21. Have you gone over to the north side? Yeah. Okay. I'm moving there. I know. Congratulations. So, there yeah. It's very exciting. Um, I was going to say something there uh, about what you said, the Taylor Swift stuff. So, like, the problem with the pricing is that people are paying it, right? Yeah. So it's never going to go backwards is the worry. Unless, no. her, unless her popularity wanes but it doesn't look like it's but, going but, to but 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 and I had so many people having a go at me on Twitter about this yesterday I agree with or whatever day it was like, I was advocate that's no 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 and I get it and I'm not saying that either side is right or wrong what I'm saying is like it's not up to Rachel like my cousin Rachel yeah. to not see an artist that she wants to see to fight gouging like it's up to the big body. Like why is there no consumer body out there fighting this? No. Why is Ticketmaster allowing it? Why is the promoter allowing it? Why is the artist allowing it? There, There's not one person here who is to blame. And I think putting the, the onus on the customer in this instance is actually not the right thing to do. Yeah. Because there has been so much talk and during the pandemic that the artists came out and, you know, obviously there were artists who lost out on a hell of a lot during the pandemic because they couldn't perform, they couldn't sell t-shirts all of the rest, I completely get that. But now to swing back and put the pressure on the consumer, yeah, I don't think that's fair. No, it's not, but the problem is if the consumer continues to pay the prices demanded, then nothing will change. So like you could argue that the the general consumer is too passive mm. and accept too much. Like they complain to friends and family about the cost of things, but they're still going to pay it ultimately. Yeah. It's like if you go for a pint in Dublin city centre, like it's an outrageous amount of money. Mm. But when you're out and about with your buddies, like you're not going to refuse to pay, you know. So if people continue to pay, nothing's going to change. But you'd you'd like for Taylor Swift to be the anti-hero. Uh, Check you out knowing she, a Taylor uh, claims to be. That's a great tune. That is a great um, song. That she would be the one to say, well, look, I have all the money in the world. Let's let's just charge people a reasonable fee, which is what Radiohead did. Which is when I was looking at Oasis stuff from back in the day, like the price of tickets to their gigs was so unbelievably reasonable. Like net worth, yeah. anyone could go, basically. If you had a bit of pocket money, you could go. It was just, a, that was more about demand than cost. Mm-hmm. I like, yeah, I wish we could talk about Oasis, Jess. I know, more. but I have to go and talk to Pat Kenny, so I'm sorry. Do you want to come on another time and talk about Oasis? Well, we kind of did a bit, like, but um, I wanted to do more, you know. I could do a full hour of Oasis, you know. We could, Absolutely. Uh, but we won't because we're up against the clock. Sorry, chicken. Uh, Colin Buick of Off The Ball, thank you so much. When we come back here on News Talk, we're going to hear about the new higher diploma in game design from Maynooth University. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Uh, Coming up in just a few minutes time, screen time with uh, the nation's sweetheart, John Fardy. John, what's on the show? (laughs) Well, the two big new releases of the week and possibly the summer and not the year are Oppenheimer and Barbie. Two very different movies, both of which I've seen, which I'll be reviewing in the company of Chris Wasser. Ger Gilroy of Off the Ball is talking to me about his favourite movie, which is a lot of fun. We're talking uh, Hollywood Strike. I was meant to be talking to Killian Murphy this week, but obviously he's on strike, so I wasn't able to, but I am talking to Jessica Kiang of Variety about why the strike is happening. And we're going to squeeze in Ross Whittaker, who made a brilliant documentary about the women who are currently representing Ireland, The Road Down Under. Okay, I've got a lot of questions yes. and things to pick up here. So firstly, earlier in the show, Colin Bowie was with me and we were talking about 
AI in the context of art. Yes. So very much on, do you remember a few months ago there was a lot of talk about the Oasis album and all that sort of jazz? Absolutely. But as I mentioned to Cullum, AI is like a big part of this strike as well. Yeah. I saw Brian Cox speaking very passionately about his concerns around artificial intelligence and also the notion of if you're an extra, they could just scan your body, pay you $200 and then put you in the background of anything they want. It's very worrying. And this is really the reason why they're on strike. And I'm sure you know all this, but there is the idea that you would show up and get a pretty decent part in something if if you were like just a day player, Mm. have a line or two, and then your image is used for perpetuity for the rest of your life and you get paid for one day. So I really get where they're coming from. So I don't think the future's as dark. Oh, I think it's very bleak. But anyway, let's not dwell on that. Let's go to something else that's quite bleak. Uh, Oppenheimer. (laughs) Yes. So you said, you said I, I know we're all going to be tuning in after six o'clock to hear yeah. your full take, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I am reading the book, American Prometheus, wow. on which the film was based. Yes. Because I haven't seen the film yet. And I have a question for you. How early on in Oppenheimer's life does the film start? Does it go back to all the stuff when he was a kid or is it just pick up and play from adulthood? A very small smattering of his childhood. It's mostly his adult years, particularly when he starts on the bomb business. So I know his childhood is fascinating. That isn't really dealt with. Now, you would think in a movie three hours long, they might have had time. That's what I was thinking, yeah. But they didn't. But it is very good. Do you want to know the cruelest irony? Go on. So it's three hours long, Mm. which is Christopher Nolan, you expect that. But the screening I went to, there was a power cut. Ah, go away. The irony of a movie about a man trying to harness energy. There's a power cut all, all along Dame Street that day, last Wednesday. So I watched it for four hours. <laughs> oh, crying out loud. I know. It's a great movie, though. There are worse movies to be stuck at. Yeah, no, I, I cannot yeah. wait to go see it. But the book is fascinating. I'm kind of a third of the way through it. And there's an awful lot of detail about his younger years. Yeah. But, you know, you can kind of get a, a real sense of the man. Because obviously I know little bits and pieces mm-hmm. But that that the formative years and like he was quite ill as a child, depression, a bit of anxiety, like there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. And I just find it, I always love when a book is turned into a movie, but the book is really good. You know, yeah. sometimes it can be an adaptation and either the book or the movie is stronger. Yeah. I'm Look, intrigued. I'm not saying suffering ennobles anyone, but you show me a genius or an artist and you will see a childhood that has some strange things going on or some kind of trauma, in my experience. And, you know, you are very clever and insightful. It's, it's been said. Irish Prometheus, I believe, is what my... <laughs> well, I was going to talk to you about something else, but get out. Uh, you can hear more of this nonsense after six o'clock with John Friday. John, thanks very much. Thank you. Moving swiftly along, uh, Maynooth University has recently just secured €240,000 in funding from the Higher Education Authority for a brand new higher diploma in game design. This programme is being headed by Dr Natalie Culligan of Maynooth University and she joins me now. Natalie, thanks so much for your time. Um, Just start by telling me a little bit about your own grow for gaming and where that's come from. Yeah. So, I mean, I started playing games very young. So, you know, it would have been late 80s when I first started playing games. And I was very small at the time. We had a Commodore 64, which was one of these old games that played off cassette tapes, which I love telling my students about because I'm like, oh, back in my day, we didn't have downloadable games. We used to have to get cassette tapes. And now they say, obviously, you know, what's a cassette tape, which is terrifying. <laughs> um. So, you know, that, that was, those are my first sort of introductions to games. And, you know, I was very young. I had no concept of, you know, games not being for girls or anything like that. So I, I just very naturally took to it. Um, and, you know, it was kind of my introduction to computers. Uh, obviously, now I have a PhD in computer science. I teach in computer science. And I feel like that was really important, giving me that confidence uh, with computers. Um, and now, you know, recently, obviously, uh, teaching, I've, I've set up this diploma about teaching um, video game development, because it's something that's always kind of been a passion of mine, because uh, I think it really brings together kind of technology and also art. So, you know, teaching programming is obviously really important and really fun, and we can use it in all these kind of different areas. Uh, and I'm really interested in how we can use it to create not just, you know, apps for banking or how Mm -hmm. can we you know build social media sites which are all great but also how can we create these new experiences you know in the same way that um 
you know, when film was created, we started thinking about how can we make these amazing new experiences? And, and that's really what I'm interested in looking at with video games. Tell me a little bit about this diploma that I saw that you secured or Manute secured €240,000 in funding from the Higher Education Authority, which is incredible, um, for the higher diploma in game design. Tell me a little bit about what that entails. Yeah, so we managed to get this funding, uh, which is very exciting. So the idea of this diploma is that it's really aimed at people who have completed a degree already. So maybe you've done a degree in computer science or media, some kind of related field, and you're interested in you're interested in video game design, but you, maybe you feel you don't quite have the skills. So you come out of computer science, and like like we said before, you know, um, you're really good at programming. But what is what are those additional skills that you need uh, to build a video game? So those might be, um, you know, media skills. You know, what is it about a game that makes the user feel a particular way? Um, or you might come out of a, a media degree and feel like you, you have that side of it, but maybe you don't have the programming. Or even, you know, if you've done maybe a media and computer science degree, um, you might not quite have um the skills to bring all that together so it's this diploma where there's a lot of kind of um selection that you can have of, of what modules you can do and then we have these core modules that are about game design so in this game design course you know we'll go through what makes a, a, a game successful what makes it good the different uh parts uh of, of putting a game together um and then you know things like um a game design document so how you plan it and bring it to fruition and then game testing so how can we get a game put it in front of um users and see what their experience is like i've done a few um uh, tests like that in the university uh, with some really really interesting stuff there um, and also in the diploma over the course of a year every student will have the opportunity to um to build a game basically from scratch. So at the beginning, we'll, we'll talk you through um, sort of pitching a game idea. Mm -hmm. And as you learn your different skills, you start putting it together. So you prototype and you talk about your plan and you focus on a particular area. Because obviously building an entire game in a year, uh, an academic year is, is quite extreme uh, or, or quite intense, I should say. Um, so we'll talk about how you build a particular part of the game and then you'd be able to kind of display it at the end of the year and say this is my um, proof of concept um so there's a lot of of hands-on work and a lot of kind of filling in gaps that people might have from their previous education people can also apply if they don't have degrees if they have work um you know in tech uh, there's ways to kind of get in so it, you know people can contact us and we'll see what we can do about getting people um involved in the course awesome stuff well look it does sound like an incredible program and a great achievement indeed to set it up get the funding and make it happen it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for joining us here on news talk thanks so much cheers yeah that was dr natalie culligan of maynooth university and that's it from me this week if you missed any of the show you can listen back in full on the news talk app powered by go loud i'll be back with shane and kira on monday's news talk breakfast but in the meantime have a great weekend